episode 172 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a business in cross-stitch with my guests, Lizzie and Spencer Bean. Lizzie and Spencer are the founders and owners of Stitch People, which began in 2013. They both share a great love of entrepreneurship, dog rescue, they have three shelter dogs, and performing, which they share as their capital D dream. They got their start on the stage, but now Lizzie more frequently performs on screen, and Spencer has become a talented voiceover artist. Stitch People has been their source of hard work and joy for the past seven years, and they are absolutely stunned by the amazing creations of the incredibly talented and supportive Stitch People community. So Lizzie and Spencer Bean, welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us on. (laughs) You're welcome. I have seen Stitch People, especially the Stitch People book, um, so often over the years, and I'm really fascinated and excited to have the opportunity to talk with you and to learn more about it and more about the history of your business. So um, I know, Lizzie, you started making cross-stitched portraits Mm -hmm. of people um, for gifts for your family um, over Christmas, I think of 2011. Um, yeah. So and maybe you can start there by just telling us kind of maybe backing up from there, the the path that brought you to bringing to making these cross stitch portraits sort of sure. how did how did that happen? So uh, that that could be a long and sordid tale, but I'll sum it up for you. Um, in 2011, I was in my last official semester of college. I had an internship the following semester in 2012, but it's kind of my last semester of regular coursework and credits and all sorts of things. And I was, uh, I was very antsy to be done. It was winter. Um, and I was in a job at a startup tech company, um, in our area working as a graphic designer. And it was pretty stifling all those conditions together. I was not very happy. The job was not, uh, I actually really liked my job. The company was not very supportive. There was a lot of, um, it was kind of a boys club and I was the st- stereotypical girl on the team begging for more responsibility that they didn't want to give me. It was really hard. So I was kind of looking to get creative again because I wasn't feeling that in my life. It was just work and school and ho-hum every day, all day. And I was... Uh, flipping through a magazine and saw kind of the suggestion for cross-stitch family portraits. And I thought it was a really cool concept. I I thought the patterns were a little odd. Um, it really leaned into that pixely kind of style. And the the figures were very square and kind of, I don't know, I didn't like it, but I liked the concept. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I went home and I got out my graph paper and I just kind of started my own designs and liked what I came up with. And I just made one for my mom for Christmas. And I made one for my sister. And I think I made one for you, for us. Must be somewhere. I can't remember, actually. It was the two of us. We only had two dogs at the time. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so then I, I had a couple friends who had seen what I'd done. And, oh, would you make me one? Okay, sure. So I, I made a few more. And Spencer said, hey, you should see if you could sell these online. And I happened to reach out to this website called Uncommon Goods. It's kind of a curated Etsy for artisan 
handmade and unusual things. And they helped us get our process in place to take orders and, and make these for people um, as, as a product that we sold. And so then we opened stitchpeople.com where we sold portraits. And then we started noticing on social media, everybody was pinning our, our portraits going, oh, this is so cool. Oh, I'd love to figure this out. Oh, I want to make one for myself. Uh, it's, that was actually more Spencer who was following those trends. I don't know if you have any... Wait, no wait, okay. I want to stop that. you. I want to stop you here because hold on. That we so we have to back up a few steps. So, okay. So, uncommon goods. That is a huge piece of this story. I feel like because yeah. um, uh, that is like a it's a catalog. I get it at my house, mm-hmm. and I think probably a lot of listeners do get it. And um, a lot of people kind of want to be able to sell there. And so, for you to have gotten these portraits there. Um, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's not, that's not like, I mean, it's one thing to sell on Etsy because you're, you're, to sell on Etsy is, you know, anyone can open an Etsy shop. Right. It costs 20 right. cents. You just click a button and boom, you have an right. Etsy shop. Um, but to sell on Uncommon Goods, you have to get a buyer there to, to mm-hmm. see and review your products and decide that they're good enough and they're saleable and this catalog, you know, so that's kind of a big deal. So go back to that step and just tell us like, sure. how did you get your, you know, sort of cross-stitch portraits in front of that person? Did you just randomly email it? Or how did that idea even occur to you? To be honest with you, it it didn't really occur to me. I, If I recall, and I, I wish I remembered more vividly, but my memory is I got, I was on their mailing list. I had purchased from them. You know, I love, their, it's a great place to go for just interesting, you know, Father's Day gifts or whatever. Just something a little more out of the ordinary or personalized. And so I was on their newsletter, email newsletter. And I think I recall reading like at the bottom of one of the newsletters, like, are you interested in becoming a seller? And I thought, oh, okay, (laughs) that's, that's cool. And so I clicked on it. And I just, I just kind of randomly submitted, like you said, I just on a whim, I, I took some pictures of the latest portrait that I had done. And I wrote a description about it and how it worked. And I sent it in. And then I did hear back from them. And then they wanted a physical portrait for them to have and review. So I made up a special one um, for the buyer. And that was really fun because it's such a custom product. I said, hey, why don't you send me photos of you and your family or significant other or whatever um, so that at least, you know, it's it's not just a random portrait. It might as well look like you. So I think that was a fun way that I could personalize it for the buyer so that it was a little more, you know, charming personalized, appealing. And also a good example of what the process would look like if you were to sell online, because that's how it would work. That's true. People would order, they would send pictures in. uh, And so to kind of give them a taste of what that would look like start Mm -hmm. to finish, I think was was brilliant on your part. Yeah. So so I did that. And then I it was a little while before I heard back. And then they said, hey, we'd love to sell. And we just went back and forth about what that would look like, what our costs were. uh, And they had their markup. And we figured out the process for working together. And I, uh, I will just explain for anyone who's looking to sell with them, at least at that time. So that was around, I think we sold with them 2013 through 2015 ish. Yeah, sounds about right. And since mine is a custom product that's custom made for every single customer, how many times can I say the word custom? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I didn't ever interface with the customers directly. So if you're a person who makes a super custom product per person and you start selling with uncommon goods, they will likely act as the intermediary or middleman between you and your customers, which was a little bit of a hindrance just because if I had a quick question or follow-up, I had to contact the uncommon goods people who would then contact the customer who would then come back through them. But I understand it as far as business practices go. They, you know, 
they want to make sure that they control the customer sure, service sure. experience. So I understood, but it did create a little bit of a, a kink in the process that I was used to. So just a heads up for anyone doing custom work through or wanting to through Uncommon Goods. Um, but that said, they were great to work with and we really enjoyed it. Um, there was a really one of the biggest things that came out of Uncommon Goods was when we said this is how much we need to make per portrait. Um, and they came back and they said, that sounds great. We're going to mark it up to this. And it was a, almost a 100 percent markup. Mm -hmm. And we thought no one will buy this. This is too much. No one's going to pay for this. Um, but the day we went live and like the first catalog we were published in, orders flooded in. Yeah, people loved it. So was that kinda, was that a great boost of confidence for you, well, like was, to understand, like oh, what I'm really worth? I mean, yeah. I think a lot of times with a handmade business and also with custom products, especially when you're just getting started, you don't really understand what the market can bear, and and totally. underpricing is a really common thing. It's a huge oh, issue, and we see that in our community as well. People are going, oh, I want to sell these now. How much do I charge? And we are so passionate about helping people understand their true value because it's so easy. Um, as a as a crafter of any kind to you are a crafter so you're good at this already you are immersed probably in crafting communities where your friends on Facebook and probably your friends in real life are also crafting so in your mind this is just something that everybody does right because you do it you're good at it your friends are good at it this is your world but it's e easy to forget that not everybody does this not everybody crafts not everybody has these skills and so for people buying a custom portrait who are lawyers and accountants and they just want to wow their significant other with a really interesting creative gift, they're willing to pay for the skills that you have and that we all have as crafters and likely take for granted um, because it's our day to day. So it's easy to think like, oh, anybody can do it because you do it. So it's easy for you, but not everybody can do it. And it's so easy to undervalue yourself as an artisan. Um, yeah, because it takes years of practice and years of understanding the nuance of your craft and that that is valuable. Yeah, a lot of people I think um, when they when they go to price things, they think, well, how much time does it take me, and what are my supplies worth? And that's a, I think that's a great place to start when mm -hmm. you're pricing out products. I actually think a lot of people don't think about how much time it takes them; well, they just think about supplies. That's true. I think a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, they start with supplies. They yeah. go, how how much you know are my materials, um, and then they might say, okay, how much how much is my time worth? You know, per hour. Um, but what a lot of people I think fail to take into account is those years of experience, all that knowledge that you've gained over over time, it's like it's the reason that an accountant or a lawyer can charge so much because they may not spend a whole lot of time working on something, but it's the knowledge that they have to back up what they're mm. doing. They can do it quickly. Knowledge they can do they've it gained over years. Over years, and so I think a lot of crafters um, who are trying to sell online uh, don't give themselves enough credit mm -hmm. for all of the experience that they actually do have that is unique to them and their. Special creativity. You know, everybody does things just a little bit differently. What makes your Stitch People portraits a little different? Or what makes you, Abby, like your puppets and things, what makes those a little bit different? Um, and that's your special thing that you bring to the table that people pay for. You know, that's why people pay extra for the top whatever in the industry because they bring something different to the table. So, I th yeah, it's a really interesting thing that you double back to Uncommon Goods because there are a lot of lessons to be learned from that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was – so that was really a, a, an a important step along your business yeah. journey for sure. Right. You um, learned so much. Yeah. And so then um, – and at that time, um, Spencer, you – had your own job like you this was or or both of you had your own jobs like mm -hmm. this was not neither of you your jobs this was just 
um, something that um, you were doing kind of on the side. And Spencer, what were what was your job? Um, I know gra- you were a graphic designer, Lizzie, but what, what was your job? Uh, I was working as a product manager for another local startup, actually just a startup down the road from Lizzie's. Um, yeah, working as a product manager for a company that made like financial banking software. So nothing super sexy and kind of a new skill for me. And I I only ended up being in that job about a year and a half. Um, and after then that, I, th- then I went freelance. So my, my background is in coding and, and website stuff. So I, I did freelance for a while. But yeah, we, we rode multiple jobs for several mm-hmm. years while doing Stitch People, waiting waiting for Stitch People to eventually overtake, you know, the income yeah. that was coming in from those jobs so okay. you can do it full time. Right, right. Okay, got it. All right. Yeah. And so then you were saying that you, you did set up your own website um, mm-hmm. for Stitch People. And was that an e-commerce site right away? Yes, it was e-commerce right away. And I, as the tech guy, I was like, oh, I'm going to build this website from scratch because that's <laughs> what I do. Um, and I was talking to some some friends at work at the startup that I worked at and kind of asked, Asking them about technical specifications, like what framework should I use, what languages should I use, and I remember a guy looked at me and he goes, "Why are you building this? That's so dumb. Just buy one of the options that's out there. Like go with Shopify." Right. And I'd never heard of Shopify, and so I checked it out and went, oh, "Okay, yeah, no, this is the right choice." <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> so from yeah. from the get go, we launched on Shopify. Yeah. Oh, that we was were smart. on Etsy for about a month, but we were. What's funny is we were one of three sellers on Etsy. So there's us and two others who are selling anything even remotely close to what we were doing. And now years later, there's I think over a thousand if you search for a cross stitch family portrait on Etsy. Um, So it's really fun to see how that's grown. But we had a really hard time at first figuring out how to charge for these. Do you charge per character? And then how, you know, how do you charge adults versus children versus pets versus text if you have plain text or fancy text it was really hard to kind of work within the etsy framework to figure out how to build up the customization options so that was one of the reasons we decided on e-commerce from the start was it gave us a little more control over variables and customizations got it okay all right so you're on shopify you're selling these customized portraits Mm -hmm. um and then you were mentioning right at the end of that initial story that you started to see a lot of people pinning the Stitch People portraits. Mm-hmm. And what they were writing in the pin description was, I want to DIY this. I want to mm-hmm. be able to figure out how to make my own. And yeah. that happens to a lot of people who make finished products and sell them, whether it's on yeah. Etsy or on their own site, or they're just blogging about what they're making. Um, and the, and people will, will say, oh, I want to make one. I want to figure out, I, I can make this. And mm-hmm. that can often, at least initially, really rub people the wrong way, where they mm-hmm. feel like, how dare somebody say they want to make my signature product, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to sort of figure out my signature recipe. They're going to, you know, try to, try to crack that code. That's mine. And um, it can really make people upset. And, and, yeah. then, and then sometimes they kind of get over that and sometimes they never do. So I wondered if that was your initial reaction. Were you initially like, oh, no, um, did you have that feeling? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Very much. Um, for sure. Because we had gone through these, I mean, by, by this point, it had been a few years mm-hmm. of trial and error. Right. I had, I mean, if you saw the, the, uh, 
timeline, I guess, is what I'm looking for. The development of my designs from the very first I made for my parents versus where it was at that point versus what it is now. Um, you know, there's so much trial and error. There's so many things, little tweaks. We figured out our processes. So, yeah, there definitely was that initial, like, you see somebody, oh, I want to figure out how to make this. And you're like, oh, do you? Oh, do you want to figure it out for yourself? Like, I'd like to see you try. You know, you just have you that. Have an, that it, there's a, like a, a hostile, like, yes, ugh, like feeling. It's like yes. your baby. Your baby. Uh, right. Yeah. And and, also, yeah. like, you feel like, like someone just pulled the rug out from under you because yeah. you've been building this business and you've been, like Lizzie said, trial and error. And, mm-hmm. and you've, you've gotten to this really great place. And then with cross-stitch – it's really easy. It can be easy to replicate because it's just squares. And so you just mm-hmm. look at it and it's not too hard to figure yeah. out what Creative to do. people have a pretty easy time looking at pictures of finished portraits and doing that themselves, you know, yeah. just off the bat. So all of a sudden, we so we faced two issues. The first hostile thought we had was, <laughs> well, now these people aren't going to buy from us. Right. Which is too bad. And the second hostile thought was, well, if other people figure out how to do this, then they could also be selling right. and create competition for us. Right, which stinks because they wouldn't have the idea if we weren't doing it in the first place. Like you said, it is like your signature recipe. It's um, it gets into intellectual property, which is a huge. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm sure that comes up for creative people a lot, uh, and we were very in tune with that from the start. You know, when so when we started seeing people pinning our our photos, we did have that hostile thought. But then we thought, okay, if you can't beat them, join them, and that's when we sort of pivoted into, uh, well, if we're going to, if we're going to, if there's going to be more of these out in the world, at least let's set the standard. And so that's why we did our do it yourself stitch people book where we thought people who are going to try and make these on their own, aren't going to buy a finished portrait from us anyway. Right. Because that is actually two different customers. Right. And I think that's the first thing to understand here Mm -hmm. is that the DIY audience and the audience for a finished portrait is, for the most part, not 100%, but for the most part, a different audience. Totally. And so totally. the, the person who's going to spend on a finished cross-stitch portrait of their family with their dogs and everything else is not the same por- person who wants to spend, you know, to buy a pattern so that they can right. figure out how to make portraits of all of their family members. Totally. And when you, when, when that sunk in for us, it was a relief, honestly, yeah. because that fear of, oh no, all these people who are going to DIY it, we're losing those customers. They were never our customers to begin with. They were never going to buy a finished portrait even to begin with. And there's probably no way we could convince them to through ads or marketing or anything like that. Um, and when you kind of step back and accept that, it's like, oh, okay, it helps you find new really customers. Pin down. Yeah, you're actually yeah, opening exactly. yourself up to a new market. Are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we yeah, how do we bring those people in? Yeah. What, what do we do? The there? uncommon goods people and the, you know, people buying from, from and, us. And we it, it was also a relief because we knew that hand stitching portraits is not super scalable. Right. Lizzie can only stitch so fast. Um, and I'm not a very fast stitcher. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we could start to outsource and like hire other people, but then you run into quality control issues and uh, there's just uh, growing the business that direction seemed more daunting than helping crafters figure out how to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was an easy way to kind of, like you said, just scoop 
keep up that that market that was looking for a product, was looking for something, uh, and didn't have anything at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really about scale, the ability to yeah. scale. Had you never added instructions, would such people have ever been able to support the two of you in scale? No, I, I truly don't think so. Um, it, and that's and that would have been okay, I think, for for some people. We had always wanted to run our own business. We were always very entrepreneurial. <laughs> um, my uh, major was in music in college, but my minor was in business. Spencer Spencer's degree was like half tech, half business. So this was always on the brain for us was to figure out what our company would be that would sustain us. You know what our entrepreneur would be, and. Um, and what you learn in entrepreneurship classes is niche, niche, niche. You find, uh, you find just the nichiest niche you can, the problems to solve. And that's what dawned on us with, with Stitch People was, well, people are wanting these patterns. So, okay, not only are we a cross-stitch company, we're a cross-stitch family portrait company. You know, it's super niche, even within the niche of cross-stitch. So it's not just crafting, it's cross-stitch. It's not just cross-stitch, it's cross-stitch family portraits. And... So we were able to take some of those skills that we had learned in school and transfer them. And that was really where our heart was, was to build this as a business. And the reason I'm bringing that up is just to say that for listeners, um, that's not everybody's goal. And that's also okay. Yeah, And and if if what you want is just that hobby that you you enjoy creating things for people and you want to do a couple cross-stitch portraits a week or a couple knitted goods or whatever your craft is, that that's also totally cool. Just a little extra side income. Not super, you know, not a ton of pressure. Just Great creative outlet. Yeah, and, and you're really focusing on you, yourself, your materials, and your product. That's totally cool. That's, like, absolutely great, too. And and I think it's really easy to get your eyes wide with, the you know, the flashiness of, like, oh, I'm going to start my own company and business. But a lot of people find that that's not what they enjoy. What they enjoy is the craft itself, and that's okay. Because, um, um, especially because now that you do have quite a big business that's supporting two people and, and is what such people is today, realistically, Lizzie, how much time in a normal day of work do you actually spend stitching? Let's just be I honest. honestly have not stitched for pleasure. I can't remember the last time I just sat down like watching TV and cross-stitched because I enjoy it. And the last time I cross-stitched was for instructional videos. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it, so it wasn't even to fulfill orders. I, you know, we usually outsource our custom portrait orders because I don't, I don't have the time to fulfill them. Right. And so for people so. who that is what they want to spend their time doing, doing a business like this is not for you because right. you are going to be spending 90 plus percent of your time on tasks other than cross stitch. Totally. So yeah. I think that is the reality. And, and if, if that's not what you want, this is not for you. Right. Yeah. And that's also totally okay. Yeah, absolutely fine. It's yeah, it's just really important to understand kind of your why because like you said, ninety percent of what you do, it'll be taking photos and uploading them to your website or to Etsy and writing really nice descriptions of things and figuring out your packaging and answering customer service emails. I mean, it's just everything but the craft that you started the business to do. <laughs> yes. And and I think so. that that's, that's important for people yeah. to realize. So so you started with this book. And I, th- I thought that was really interesting because um, it's an ambitious project to write mm-hmm. um, a book. I don't know how many pages is, was in that first version of the Stitch People book but I think it was around 90 something okay so like 96 that's a pretty ambitious project to write a 90 some 
um, page book as yeah. your first instructional tutorial to sell to people. Because right. I mean, I also started out my business making finished goods, like mm-hmm. selling stuffed animals, you know, to people mm-hmm. on Etsy. And then um, shifted my focus to selling instructions back in 2013. So not a okay, really yeah. different path than you. Um, but my first um, instructions that I sold was a single PDF sewing pattern. And it was, you know, a couple of pages of um, instructions and then a few pages of templates. It wasn't a 90 some page bound book. Um, So why did you need to or want to start with such a huge ambitious book? (laughs) That's a really good question. I don't think we've ever had that question. And Spencer just pulled one out. Our first edition of this book was 105 pages. Okay. um, I was close. 90 something. Um, like, why you know, not just do one one um, pattern for a person? That's a really good question. And honestly, I think I anticipated starting with something smaller, like a digital download that's, you know, a few pages. But then I started thinking about, well, the whole point of Stitch People is that they're all unique. Every family is different. And that, like, sense of sinking dread and overwhelm that hit me of, like, oh, no, everyone is different. It was like, how do I represent everyone and give someone, um, you know, some inspiration for whatever their unique hairstyle might be or their unique outfits? And so I and then I also realized I had learned so much in the trial and error of how to put these on fabric. So it's like you could design your little mom character and your little dad character and your little dog, but then actually transferring it to the fabric I ran into so many mistakes where you think, oh, if there's just two characters, then I find my center point and maybe I put a little space between the characters. So I'll go over two squares to the right and do my one character. I'll go over two squares left and do my other character. Well, that always bit me in the behind because if your one character had a wider hairstyle or a wider clothing style, then it's not going to be evenly distributed with the text underneath or you know, trying to figure out how much spacing between the characters looked good. One square, two squares, three. Like, I had just so much trial and error. Yeah, just because it's, like, perfectly centered and, like, calculated doesn't mean that it's going to look good. Because, like, visual balance is its own Mm -hmm. thing that you've got to work at. You know, you've got tall characters, short characters, wide characters. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into trying to make it look as as good as possible. Uh, And Mm -hmm. what Spencer's getting at, just for listeners, is the idea, if you picture, like, a dog, if you're looking at a dog sitting kind of to the side... There's a lot of visual weight on the side where the head is because you have the head, the ears, the chest, the front legs. That's all on one side of the dog. On the other side of the dog is its little bum and a tail. And that's hardly anything visually weight-wise. It doesn't take up as much space as a big head and a big chest and big arms. So when you're thinking of where to put that dog in relation to other – if you put the dog in the middle – it's going to look closer to the figure that's near its head because there's so much visual weight on that side of the animal. And it's going to look like the person on the tail side of the dog is super far away because there's so much visual space uh, around the and little... And this really came from your training as a graphic designer that you yeah. understood yeah. all of this. And, yeah, And we could tell from feedback from fans as they were kind of developing where people were kind of starting to try it and emailing like, oh, this doesn't look right. And that would be something, why doesn't this look right? And people can identify that it doesn't look right, but they're not sure why. So then I thought, okay, how am I going to teach that part of it? (laughs) Because that's important um, because you want it to look right. And then how am I going to teach, you know, this, that, and the other. So truly it did start 
with the idea of something smaller, a basic family, here's how to customize it. And then I thought, you know what? Some people really have a hard time visualizing in their mind's eye the difference between bangs that part on the right or bangs that part on the left or a little doggy tail that goes up or a little doggy tail that goes down. And so I thought, well, I might as well just give them all the patterns so that they can see it. Um, Because that's what also you learn with cross-stitchers is cross-stitchers follow patterns. They don't make patterns usually. They they buy a pattern and follow it to the T. And it's hard for people to visualize um, what the difference of one little square can make. And so I decided to just put it all in a book and I just made I just kept making patterns and patterns and patterns short hair long hair curly hair straight hair different techniques um how I've designed uh you know graphic t-shirts or floral things or geometric things with stripes and how you can do that with such little space and little threads so it really just kind of grew and grew and grew as I figured out all the things that I had trialed and errored over uh, that might be useful for people. And how and it, long How long did it take you to write this book? <laughs> That's a good question. I think I started like January, February of 2014. Mm-hmm. And we did a pre-sale because we weren't sure if people would even be interested. So we, we opened a pre-sale and said, hey, we're going to launch this book probably by June. Would, you, would anybody be interested? And I think this was in April of that year. Yeah, so we already had we had a, a, a chunk of idea. book done. We had an outline. We we kind of knew what it was mm-hmm. going to be. So in April we did that pre-sale. Yeah, and said we would we would launch it by June, and we had some serious interest, which was really heartening. But then as I kept editing, I'd think of things that oh no, I got to put this in. Oh no, I got to put this in. And then I think I was done and thought oh no, I got to add this thing. <laughs> and so we actually didn't release it until I think September, October, October October of 2014. And we were in touch with all the people who had pre-ordered. We kept updating them, kept updating them. And luckily the majority of the reason it was taking longer was because it was just getting bigger and better and bigger and better. Right. Um, So so no one was too disappointed um, because it just was like, Oh, we're adding more content. And then we did have a little bit, there were a couple weeks there working with our printer Mm -hmm. that that was a longer process than we had anticipated. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's kind of how it went. And then, and then how, like, did you, um, did you get it? So it sounds like you look, you worked with a local printer. You didn't do it like with Amazon print on demand or something like that. You got it printed locally. So Lizzie, because of her experience in graphic design, had designed a few books for this company she worked for and had a printer in like St. Uh, Cloud. Cloud. Um, and so she just reached out to her contact there uh, and got they were, they were our first run. Uh, and I think we printed... Uh, we printed, like I think, 200? yeah, 50, like, I think we had 100 pre-orders, and so we printed, like, 200, and mm-hmm. just to fill the orders that we had had and have some on hand, just again, because we didn't know if this right. was going to be successful, so just as a trial run, and I think the reason we did that was, A, I was already comfortable with the printer that I had worked with and the, what that process looked like, and B, uh, you know, Amazon and print-on-demand services, you get such a smaller margin, Um versus if you can figure out how to front the money yourself and keep your own inventory, which has its own problems. But we were a little more interested in having just slightly more control over, you know, we wanted it to be spiral bound. So there was really a workbook for people and we wanted certain, you know, page, you know, uh, weights and finishes and things. And so we got to customize it a little more by working with a printer. And, um, And have you shifted that process over the years or are you still working with that printer and are you still printing it yourself? 
we are still printing it ourselves. Uh, we did move to a local printer here okay. in in Utah. Yeah, that's and they've really been really great to work with, and they've printed basically all of our books mm-hmm. since I think the third run of the DIY book. Everything since then has mm-hmm. been with this printer. Yeah. Okay. And do you have an estimate of how many copies you've you've sold or? Not sure, not sure. A rough, I, a rough estimate? We just were updating our numbers. I think we have printed maybe 15,000 DIY books. I think about 20,000. Yeah, 15 to 20 we've printed. We've sold most of them because we're looking at making a new print soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. yeah, I think we're right. into – and that's of the second edition, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and did you ever consider going with a traditional publisher, you know, like a craft publisher, like, you know, one of the ones that publishes cross-stitch books? There's right. many out there. Um, and, you know, this is a, a pattern book, which often they're pretty interested in, in pattern books. Yeah. And this is very niche, but it's got, you know, a lot in it. And, um, you know, it's all done. So my guess is... They maybe I don't know if anybody's approached you about it or if you've ever considered doing it or if that is just not at all of interest to you or, or what your thoughts are there. I will just sum up and Spencer can add because he's he's our, our business brain. But uh, we have been approached and initially, honestly, I don't even think it really crossed our minds no. because we had no idea how to find one. We had no idea where to look. We had no idea how to contact a publisher. And we just thought, you know what? Let's print our little book and we'll sell it and see how it goes. (laughs) Um, Then as it grew, I would say maybe two years ago, a publisher approached us and and gave us a... Right as we were publishing the second edition. Yeah, we were thinking, oh, maybe we sell the second edition to a publisher. And the reason we haven't gone with a publisher yet is there's a couple things, and Spencer can correct me if I'm wrong. First of all was kind of control over quality. We, We... get a lot of positive feedback about our spiral binding, which publishers don't like because in a bookstore, they line the books up and you need they need a spine so that you can see the title. So that would go away, for example. And uh, also, people don't... Our, our book is a little bit of a higher price point. And How much does it cost? Our physical book is 57 And then we sell a physical digital bundle. And then we sell just the ebook as well. The, the ebook is, oh gosh, 43. 43. And uh, again, that kind of goes back to the value that we were talking about at the beginning, where most cross-stitch patterns, you well, it's get 100 a pages. <laughs> right. Well, and the second edition is 192. Okay. So, so that's the, the $57 is for uh, the 192 book. And yeah, and that's why most cross-stitch you get like maybe a book would have like a dozen patterns or something. And that's Twenty four ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine if you get you know eight patterns or something or if you buy a little kit has all the things but it's just a one off and ours truly it's not only patterns but it's instructions it's photos it's techniques it's uh, how to do it how to put it together has uh, sixteen different fonts like it's just full of if you were to buy each individual section together that it could be fourteen ninety five of its own for the women patterns for the men's patterns for the children's patterns. And that was one thing that we really felt passionate about was because it's a bit of a higher price point. If we sold it to a publisher, they'd really lower it. And we didn't want that to cheapen the experience. Um, When people invest in something with a little bit more money behind it, it's something that they're really a little more interested in. When you have to think about, oh, do I want to spend that much money? Then it really actually gets people. It's kind of like a a gym membership or something. People finally start. You could go out for a run in your neighborhood. 
But a lot of times people really start exercising when they invest the money in the gym membership because, well, now I got to go get my money's worth, right? Now I'm going to go to the gym and actually do it. Uh, and that's kind of what we found with our book, right? It's it, it really helps people commit to just jumping in in a way that like, oh, this 999 pattern, that looks pretty. And then you put it in your drawer and you forget about it because um, it's more of a uh, – yeah. Point, point of purchase. Yeah. How, I mean, how many crafters out there listening? <laughs> I'm looking at all you have <laughs> have just a drawer full of, of <laughs> projects that you've purchased, but haven't tackled yet. You know, right. everyone's got that list a mile long. Um, and we wanted a way to kind of bump this book to the top of that list immediately. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we experimented with pricing and that and that really helped. And I think we get we get a lot of good feedback where people often are saying, price made me nervous, but it's totally worth it because truly there are like thousands of pattern combinations available in the book. It's like the book that keeps on giving. And and that's what we've, again, with the second edition, it's almost twice as big as the first edition. We've just really tried to figure out how to add that value as much as possible and answer everybody's questions and just get everything in there. And a publisher would be a, a bit more limiting uh, you know, oh, that's too many pages. Oh, that's too expensive. Oh, we don't want a spiral bind. Oh, we want to throw our ads in the back of the book. Or, yeah, you know, we we want they they wanted some control. Mm-hmm. Um, and we <laughs> and uh, and also we uh, would make significantly less yeah. money. Um, like it, we are actually quite um, surprised by the margins for for traditional publishing. Um, and but that gets into also priorities as far as businesses go. We really like the business aspect. So we are really willing to not craft as much, like you mentioned, and do 90% other things because we like the business element of it. So managing our own inventory and our own uh, printing and and doing the self-publishing thing is something that is worth it to us and interesting to us from a business standpoint. And I just want to say for anybody trying to get with a publisher, it's totally okay to go with a publisher because they do so much for you. Oh, you you sell so it to much. them, <laughs> they do all the work, and you get a check in the mail. And that is so appealing. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's absolutely totally worth it for a lot of people to create the content, get it out there. You see it at Barnes & Noble or you see it at Joann's. And that is so awesome because um, we're not in those big box stores yet. We will Hopefully that's one of our goals. But, uh, but yeah, so for anybody looking at publishing, I don't want anyone to feel ashamed or anything that we're like, we wanted to do it ourselves because that's just how our brains were. And we love the business element of it. And it's it's actually a really great option for people who don't want to manage yeah, for people, the businessy yeah, stuff. If you Because that gets out of control sometimes. If you want to have that creative outlet and you can just write book after book after book and sell it to just a publisher, like that's that's a totally sustainable business model. Yep. Yeah, there's yeah. more than one way to go about this for sure. Totally. And so um, so are you still doing custom portraits? You said you have um, you have some people who are stitching those for you is that is that what you said yeah we do still offer those on our website and we offer custom patterns as well for people who want to stitch it themselves but they don't feel confident designing it themselves um and yeah we've got a a team of a few stitchers and designers who help us with those um who who i feel really represent the kind of the stitch people vibe and the stitch people offerings and uh quality and yeah, so I'll occasionally do one, but uh, but yeah, usually just because it's so so time consuming, we yeah. usually 
hire okay. that out. Okay. Yeah. And Spencer, at what point did you feel, and actually for you too, Lizzie, at what point did you feel you could quit your jobs? And did you do that at the same time or did you do that in a staggered way? And um, was there a lot of um, uh, planning involved as far as saving mm-hmm. and sort of figuring that out? Or was it a natural, you know, oh, I got laid off or my, my company downsized or whatever. And so it just seemed like a natural move or... That's a great question. That's a great question. (laughs) Um, So I quit my full-time job as a product manager in, I think, May of 2014. So right is like we had just opened the pre-sales for the book, and I just wasn't happy at my job. Um, It was was fine. It was interesting. I was not particularly passionate about finance software. Um, (laughs) And I kind of wanted to get uh, a little more programming under my belt, and I wasn't doing much of that at, at the job that I had. So I quit that job 2014 and started doing freelance website coding and um, built up a, a little freelance business that had some really good consistent had, clients, had great consistent clients. Um, and that kind of immediately replaced that income that I had uh, at my full time job. But it wasn't until I would say 2016, I think, mm-hmm. that we that we kind of looked at the finances and we went, okay, we're selling enough books consistently that we might be able to make the switch. I switched first. I Mm -hmm. quit my full... Well, I was working... I was actually working part-time for an interior design firm by 2015, Mm -hmm. which was really fun. I even... I missed that job to this day. It was just so much fun. But... Stitch People was just getting more and more demanding and we were selling the book and people were wanting other patterns and I was still doing custom portraits. I just couldn't keep up. And my company really couldn't let me take fewer than 20 hours a week, uh, you know, part time. And so I it was like, well, I guess because I, I wished I could go down to like 10 or 15 with them, but I couldn't. And so it was like, well, I guess this is it. And so that's when I quit that job. And I went all in on Stitch People. And I think mm-hmm. that was 2015. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of 2016, you kind of did the same. Yeah, I kind of passed off because I was needing his support on the tech end to keep up with what I was trying to do. Like, please add this new product to the site. Please send out an email. You know, he was doing all the tech. So it, it uh, for you asked a number of questions. We didn't mm-hmm. really plan for it that by this certain date, we really want to be full time on the business. We just kind of let it grow organically. And as it needed more of our time, we sort of shaved corners elsewhere until we couldn't justify our big kid jobs anymore and had to let those go as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was we, really scary. We didn't, I, th- this, we didn't have much savings. Yeah. Um, we, we looked at the cash flow rather than looking at like how much money we had in the bank. And we just said, as long as we can replace the income from our full-time jobs mm-hmm. with Stitch People income, mm-hmm. then theoretically yeah. we should be okay. And we took a little dip at first. It, yeah, was, it didn't dip. replace it immediately, but then it gradually built up over time, which was nice. And you mentioned earlier that when you first were on Etsy for that brief period, um, there were maybe two competitors in the space, mm-hmm. and now there's something like a thousand or some, mm-hmm. I don't know, something like that. So, yeah. so it sounds like, you know, when you first picked up that magazine, um, that kind of 
showed you, oh, here's some um, cross-stitch people and got back and got re-inspired to to do some cross-stitching. Cross-stitch portraits weren't really a thing yet or a trend or or weren't really in the DIY scene at that moment, really. Mm -hmm. And now they really are. And I'm sure stitch people played a role in bringing their popularity um, to the public eye. But but there probably are other, you know, people out there who, who help too mm-hmm. um, but but how did how do you feel about that like how, how does how do you process that that there's just so many people now who are designing these and who are in that space and who are you know creating cross-stitch portraits and and are are your peers or or I guess some people could call them your competitors like how, how mm-hmm. do you feel and how do you kind of yeah process that I guess hmm um, I'll take a first stab at yeah. this one. Um, I think it's really, really great. Um, the The general feeling that we've had is that a rising tide lifts all ships. And as, as stitch people and just cross-stitch portraits in general really took off, um, we saw an increase in business because people were seeing it on Etsy and, and thinking, oh, well, I could yeah, do this myself. <laughs> self-feeding in that way. Yeah, but we ultimately, I think it's, Wonderful. And I think it's amazing because it means that people are able to express their creativity and express their love for friends and family and, uh, you know, commissioned clients. These portraits are going out to people and making people smile and making Mm -hmm. people happy. Um, And ultimately, that's kind of one of our biggest goals is we just want to make we want to make the world a better place, as cliche as that sounds. But um, and cross stitch is just a small part of that. But the broader that cross stitch portraits go, the more people are influenced, and the more people's lives are touched by this. And not we don't take credit for that, but we just like to see that propagation, um, yeah, kind of flourish. It, we've and that I will say I agree with Spencer. I probably wouldn't have agreed with him five years ago. Um, it was really really hard to let go control. Uh, there comes a point where things kind of snowball and you can't you can't stop from one uh, can't stop someone from essentially taking your idea. Uh, and we did we have copyrighted all our books. We've trademarked our brand. We've done all the legal things on on our end. And there is a, a little bit of a definition where you can copyright and protect print, you know, our printed materials, our, our patterns. But ultimately, if someone uses our pattern to create a portrait, that becomes an interpreted piece of art. And you can't, because that went through their brain and their hands, we can't stop people from selling finished portraits. We can and and do, uh, people often will resell our patterns, <laughs> which doesn't feel very good. They, they'll put little families together, but it's basically just taking patterns from different pages of our book and putting it together and then selling it. And that's not okay. Um, the way I always explain that to people who don't understand intellectual property, I said, listen, if you're drawing Mickey Mouse and you color in his shoes green and you sell that to someone who loves it, they love it because it's Mickey Mouse. Um, it's still Mickey Mouse. You didn't make up Mickey Mouse. And the reason you're drawing him with green shoes to make him look cool, that might be your take on him. But it's because somebody else created him in the first place. And that's how we kind of explain the um, what's the word now? I can't think of it. The derivative, the derivative work, which copyright protects. So it protects what you create and derivative works, which people kind of put their own spin on what you create. Um, That's a derivative. And that's also protected by copyright. So we do we do protect our patterns because, I mean, it is my baby and it is our livelihood. 
But it, but we actually do encourage people to sell finished portraits because working for ourselves has been such a a, a positive thing in our lives. The flexibility and the um, positivity of working for ourselves has been so freeing. And so we feel very good about helping people to do that for themselves, even in small ways, if people do it as a hobby or if people do it as a full-time thing, selling portraits. Um, it's really, really re rewarding to be able to help provide something that someone can use to find kind of freedom in their life uh, from a work standpoint or a financial standpoint and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of cool to see like, oh, wow, we, like you said, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, designers and contributors to why Stitch stitch people portraits, <laughs> cross-stitch family portraits are are catching on. Uh, but, but yeah, we do have a lot to do with that. And that is very cool to see. We've also really kind of pulled back the custom portrait business. Um, we we have admittedly price discriminated on that. Yeah, we keep we, raising prices on those um, to, to just get the people who are seriously interested. And so we don't get many we don't get many orders for portraits. Our our huge bread and butter is is the patterns. Mm -hmm. um, we now have six pattern books, and we have like mm -hmm. dozens of digital downloads of and, smaller, more specific things. And, and that's by design. Uh, you know, a lot of these sellers on Etsy, um, again, like like we said, they are helping to get these portraits in the hands of people who wouldn't have them otherwise because mm -hmm. it we're too expensive for them. We just don't have the time. So we see it as a, a really positive thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you've recently expanded into events and we did mention in the introduction that you're both um, interested in performance. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can see the connection there. But I also feel like for many people looking in from the outside, they might say a cross-stitch company and events. That's uh, very interesting. It doesn't seem mm -hmm. uh, like a natural uh, area to expand. So talk a little bit about that decision and about what those events, um, I mean, obviously, we are sort of still in the midst of a pandemic. So mm -hmm. that's all, you know, put a little cramp in the events business. <laughs> um, but but sort of setting that aside, if we if, if, if that's even at all possible, um, <laughs> what what was the plan for Stitch People events? Events and what was the motivation behind that? I would say the motivation uh, was truly less from a performance aspect. Uh, that really didn't drive it. It was the, our Stitch People community on Facebook. So part of the value that we try to offer with our do-it-yourself book is that purchasers of the do-it-yourself book can join our Stitch People community on Facebook. And we now have over 7,000 people mm -hmm. in that community. And it's it's a Stitch People community. And people share photos of finished portraits. And they share progress photos. And they ask questions and share little custom you know, patterns and things that they've generated and want to share with people. And it is, a lot of people say it's their, the happiest place on the internet <laughs> for them. Or the reason they're still on Facebook is to be part of this community. Because it's very uplifting and uh, empowering and helpful. And it's just been a great community. It's just a great place. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to take that online community offline. And that was really the the decision behind trying to pursue events. Lizzie had Lizzie's been wanting to do events for years. Yeah. And Spencer's always like, I don't know. And I was always like, I, that's I, weird. He was like what you were saying. Like, that's people, not are people going to show up to an yeah. event? Like who's going to show up to cross stitch? But they do. Yeah. And our first event was back in February. February 1st, we had our first live event. We just did it locally. We live just south of Salt Lake City, and we have a pretty good audience in Utah. And so 
We did our first live event in February. We had about 80 people live and about 100 people streaming it online. And that was just so much fun. It was a half a day. We'd had a swag bag. We had some speakers and we taught some techniques. So we even had like a local improv group come and and perform a little show. And they were so great. They did all these crafting and stitching puns and just it was they really fit so well. It was a it was a lot of fun and a lot of people were able to finally meet their online friends in person, which is a really special thing to witness. And then we were going to do a live event in Southern California in September or October, but as you mentioned, the worldwide pandemic put a little uh, thorn in our side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So, but I yeah, think being so- able to meet your your online friends in person is actually super nice. And yeah. you know, I've met some of my best friends through crafting, and and mm-hmm. they started out as blogging friends and as online. Yep friends and and so you know there's a lot of value there so I give you credit for creating a way for that to happen that's I think that's really special and something that maybe some brands listening might want to consider and maybe hadn't considered Mm -hmm. doing um because they thought well I have you know a a needle point brand or something like that like that doesn't seem like it would work but it can work so And it can work on a small scale, too. Just if you know you have a handful of people locally, then you can go to a restaurant. Lots of restaurants have like a big, a bigger room for bigger events. And if you have 20 people show up and you just get to know each other and then word spreads and your next event, you might have 40 people. Like You don't have to start with a huge, big conference, (laughs) cross-stitch con, you know, you don't have to do, (laughs) even though that is our goal. Although that would be pretty cool to have cross-stitch con. I like that. So um, that's pretty neat. So I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you have some good ones. Um, And one of them is a podcast. And of course, I'm a huge podcast fan. So it is a Malcolm Gladwell podcast called Revisionist History. So why do you like this one? You listen, we both listen to this one. Um, Podcasts are great for crafters, first of all. So that's why I want to recommend a podcast. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, he's a really cool guy. Uh, he's got a great background and he's written a ton of really interesting books. I'm sure people might be familiar with The, uh, the Tipping Point or um, Blink. Blink. Uh, he's got some really great, The his latest is Talking with Strangers, which I highly recommend, especially in today's climate. But he's got a podcast too. And he just breaks down the most interesting subjects in each individual episode, kind of telling the other side of the story about a certain issue that you might not be familiar with. Um, my favorite episodes, well, I have two. One is about why McDonald's changed their French fry recipe. And he gets like, it sounds like this really basic thing, like, why would I care about that? But he gets into the science of flavors and tastes, um, synthetic oils versus like animal fats and why they taste different and why the politics behind why McDonald's changed the French fry recipe. Just fascinating. You wouldn't think to listen to something like that. And then he also has an, another favorite episode is about uh, Freudian slips. And when you say something that you don't mean, you know, it's just a Freudian slip, right? And he goes through and uh, Elvis sang a song that he never got right. And he analyzes 10 different recordings where Elvis sings the song live. And he makes like 75 mistakes total. And he, he can't get the words right. And he gets in the psychology of why he always misses up these words and what was going on in his life that made performing this particular song so difficult for him that he was really telling words that were more appropriate for his own life 
that weren't the lyrics of the song. It's just fascinating. Just really, really cool. It's a, he, he's a great thinker, and I like that he challenges – he helps to challenge assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that we like to do a lot is to just challenge our assumptions and try to be as flexible as we can because um, – we don't know everything. We don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, and and it's it's interesting to learn different perspectives and to to change your mind about things on the uh-huh. regular. Yeah, things that is true. Right? <laughs> that is true. I I do like to have my assumptions challenged, and although sometimes it can be a little bit hard, um, yeah. but it is good. It's comfortable. Yeah. It's and that's what we like him is he does it in a way that feels very safe. He doesn't. He's not. Uh, he's not aggressive. He's not actively challenging but it's more just like oh isn't that interesting have you Mm -hmm. considered yeah here's a perspective Mm -hmm. you know it's very Mm -hmm. safe (laughs) that's great um and then you wanted to recommend a book and you said this one is actually great on audiobook and it's called the bassoon king by rain wilson yes yes we listened to this uh on one of our drives to california and it's 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 fascinating. Yeah. You, you for those, well, I'll just say if you don't know who Rain Wilson is, for those of you who, who watch The Office, he's the actor who plays Dwight. Oh Dwight yes. Troops. Okay. So just to get upfront with who yeah. we're talking about, a lot of people. I mean, my first introduction to him was The Office. Mm-hmm. I think most people's first introduction yeah. was The Office. He's got an incredible life story. Uh-huh. Um, Such an interesting guy. And he he narrates it himself, which so it's adds very funny. a little extra flavor, and he's got. Uh, some guests who come on and, and read a couple of portions, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it's just an interesting, uh, it's an interesting life story and it's definitely not my life story. And in this vein of trying to understand other perspectives and, and consider other options, this is a very cool yeah. one. And it appeals to us obviously as actors, you know, and performers, cause he, he is one as well, but t- kind of talks about why he performs, why he chose acting and how he got to where he is, what his family was like. And what he go, he goes, there's a lot about The Office and the filming of The Office, which is really fun if anybody's a fan of that show. So there's a lot of insider kind of stories there. Uh, but it's also his, his spiritual journey and his journey as a father. And it's very personal and very warm, as warm as it is funny. And so we just, we listened to it on a road trip and we're like, oh my gosh, this is such a great book. It's just, you know, an autobiography about his life so far and very fun, a very fun listen. Um, I would recommend since it sounds like you like um, memoir um, and of um, performers, um, I would recommend um, Trevor Noah's book. I don't know if you've listened to it. It's Um, it's on our list. Oh my gosh, Born a Crime. So I just finished it. I listened to it in like three days and it's not (laughs) short. so great. And his story, his life story is just... I mean, go listen to it. It's the best book I've listened to all year. (laughs) His interview with Jerry Seinfeld on Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee on Netflix. Oh, I'll go watch that. that. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's so good. That show in general is so fun. But yeah, if you watch the Trevor Noah episode with Jerry Seinfeld, he tells a little bit of his story. And that was (sighs) kind of my first introduction to Trevor Noah. And I had no idea who he was or where he came from. He's an incredible person and has lived an incredible life. So I, yeah. So anyway, that's my recommendation. (laughs) Okay. Um, And then you have an app as your third one. It's a health app. Is it called (laughs) Shapa? I don't know how you say this. That's what we thought. That's what we thought. It's called Shapa. Shapa. Okay. And this is one, I just saw a Facebook ad for it. Um, And what it is, is it's a, it's a scale that you weigh yourself on, but it doesn't have the numbers. It doesn't show you how much you actually weigh. Um, And the idea is that 
the number itself doesn't matter as much as the direction that you're going. And so it'll have you fill out a little profile like – It tracks you, muscle mass too. It's yeah, not it tracks just... muscle mass. Um, and it'll say, you know, what are your eating habits? What kinds of things do you have in your house right now? Uh, and then you weigh your yourself in the morning and in the evening and it'll just tell you if you're headed in the right direction. And if, if you're not, it prompts you to – you know, one, one of the prompts is – Put down your fork between every bite of a meal. Just little challenges. Just little challenges. Take a full glass of water with you to bed mm-hmm. and drink it as you're falling asleep or drink it first thing you, when you wake up. Right. Add an extra serving of vegetables to your next meal. Just like little things that feel doable. Where you're like, oh, I could do that. Or I'm I'm a huge Coke Zero fan. And one of the first challenges I got was have a soda-free day. And I was like, what? Impossible. But I did it. And it was like, oh, I could do that. I could eliminate that if I wanted to, or I could limit it or whatever. Health is uh, health is something that we're we're pretty passionate about. Um, but we've also last learned- three months have been hard. <laughs> last three months have been hard. Um, but it's 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 hard to make big sweeping changes yeah. um, that are sustainable. A lot, you know, you can you can make big changes and they last uh, a month or two. Um, and so we're all about kind of the small little nudges in the right direction mm-hmm. to get you ultimately where you're going. Yeah. What's that phrase you use? The make uh, execution effortless. Yeah. Make execution effortless. Um, And so if you can just do these small little tweaks here and there and a tweak, you know, if, if your scale says, Hey, you're up a little bit, you don't have to freak out about the number. You don't have to freak out about how much you just know, okay, if I'm up, I I should probably be conscious about some of these smaller things. (laughs) Drink some more water. Drink some more water, less soda, (laughs) whatever it is, uh, and just kind of nudge you in the right direction. And that's, that's what I really like about it. Mm, I love that. And I love it. Can I add a sub recommendation? Yeah, please do. I I was going to say what something he said reminded me the book I was debating about recommending was Rain Wilson's book or this book called The Little Book of Big Change. And mm. it goes into the this idea of little incremental habit changes and and how to kind of not let your thoughts control you. Because a lot of times a habit happens because we have this impulse, I gotta, I gotta have a Coke Zero, I gotta have a Coke Zero, I gotta have it. And the only way to make that thought go away is to indulge. But it kind of talks about like how you don't have to give in to those thoughts and just how why those thoughts exist. And how to kind of combat them in easy little just mental switches. Mm. It, it's a quick read. The Little Book of Big Change is another. Oh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a good one for me to pick up. And also for my 16-year-old, I feel like <laughs> might be good for her too. So um, wonderful. Well, Lizzie and Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. This a was pleasure. a pleasure. Yes. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.